Hello, friends. It's Ann West, Executive Director of the Island Health and Wellness Foundation, and we are back with another Just for the Health of It podcast episode. The following is a conversation that I had with Matthew Trombley, Senior Executive Director at Island Nursing Home. We are continuing our discussion about the recent news that Island Nursing Home will be closing after almost 40 years. This is the third in a series of podcasts that we will do with Matthew and or Rhonda Dodge. Rhonda is the chairman of the board of directors for the nursing home. Um, We'll be talking over the next few weeks to keep the community up to date and answer any listener questions. As usual, nothing that Matthew and I say today is intended to be any sort of medical or healthcare advice. What we're talking about is just for educational purposes. So with that, welcome Matthew. And to start today, um, are there any updates that you would like to share that have happened since the last time we talked? Sure, thank you, and for you know having me on here today. Um, you know, updates we we've continued to work with facilities um, throughout the state and actually even out of the state for a few families that want to be placed um, in different communities uh, local to you know their loved ones. Um, you know, we are making progress on placement right now. We are down to 48 residents out of the 70, um, and we have 13 more that have been uh, accepted that we're just trying to work out, um, making sure the final paperwork gets processed for applications for the places, as well as lining up for transportation for them. Um, so we are um, moving at a steady pace, uh, certainly not um uh, a fast pace by by any standard, um, but it's it's been a steady pace. You know, certainly it has been a challenge uh, having to be one of the first facilities out of the the nine that have been made mention that are going to be closing uh, by the end of the year. But you know, one of the things that we've really kind of noted as a benefit of being one of the first, uh, and unfortunately the first to notify, um, is that there are a couple of beds available in the state. Um, We're finding that nearly every facility that we've called, um, they all have 10 plus beds open at every facility. They just don't have the staff to fill them. Um, And so we're actually trying to work out um, some situations with facilities where if we can get enough staff that might be interested in applying, um, they might actually be able to take uh, a, you know, a sizable group of our residents. Um, but that's really how tight staffing is, uh, all, even all across the state, um, is that there's beds open quite literally everywhere, just not enough staff to staff them. Wow. Um, thank you, first of all, for the work that you're doing in that respect <clears throat> and the creative uh, staffing arrangements and the thought process that way, because those, those are not things that happen overnight and they take many hours of work and negotiations, I'm sure. Um, are there any rumors or community questions that you'd like to address um, in this forum that have come to your attention? Sure, you know, and actually I even reached out to uh, my team here to see if there was anything that they um, wanted to have addressed. And so we do have a few items that they, um, you know, asked me to kind of comment on. So I know that it's been brought up a couple times in a couple different settings about an international staffing company that supposedly had guaranteed staffing around December um, that we declined. Um, We actually looked back on our records. There was an international staffing company that we were in communication with. Um, We emailed them twice and phone called them once uh, and we received zero response for them. Um, But, you know, outside of that, Again, we, we've reached out to over 200 staffing agencies since January of this year, which has resulted in 42 contracts. Um, and there's just not uh, the results that they guarantee. Um, you know, we actually, in the month of um, July and in the beginning of August, we actually secured five more contracts, not contract staff, but contracts with staffing agencies. Um, and none of those contracts have yet to even provide staff. Now, mind you, um, when we spoke with them, every single one of the five said that they could have staff to us in four to 10 days. Um, and we've not seen a single staff member from any of them. So that was certainly one item that they would ask me to, to, to clear up. Um, and you know, we, just, we just had spoke about 
uh, you know, being one of nine facilities, I know, you know, it's certainly not an easy process, but we're not an anomaly. Um, you know, on McKnight's, uh, if you want to go to McKnight's.com, uh, it's, it's a national publication for long-term care. Um, they actually note that they're expecting uh, 1,800 facilities to close by the end of 2022. Um, wow. And they actually did a survey um, and 75% of facilities were concerned, 75% were concerned about making it through the end of this year financially. Um, you know, so uh, unfortunately, it's going to take uh, federal government to be able to step in and help control um, some of the environment and the industry because um, we're very close to a collapse. Um, and then there was also uh, another item that was brought up during another public forum um, uh, where somebody had made a statement that we could work below legal ratios uh, and that it's not true that we would have to send residents to the emergency room. Um, even during our COVID outbreak, uh, at no point in time were we ever allowed to drop below legal ratios. Um, you cannot obtain a waiver for that. I actually have an email requesting that specific waiver during COVID from licensing of the state of Maine, um, and that was denied, and I was notified that they will not provide waivers for that. Um, those those um, ratios are put in place to ensure proper staffing levels. Um, and just as an example, on first staff, you can have one care provider to five residents maximum. Um, and then as far as uh, housing, um, you know, just to put it out there, you know, we, we've quite literally scoured the state for housing. Um, we actually had one of our contract staff that was um, commuting from Millinocket. That was the closest wow. staffing, uh, the housing that they could find. So, um, you know, we certainly have not just tried to, um, you know, look for housing between here in Bucksford or, or here in Ellsworth. Um, we actually had somebody placed in Millinocket uh, and they were making the drive here. So, um, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I really would like to clear up is, um, I don't want to call it a misconception or, or maybe just the, the information hasn't been clear. Um, so from what I can gather is that the perspective is that we've known that we're going to close for months or maybe even a year. Um, that isn't the timeline, unfortunately. Um, you know, certainly staffing has been a challenge. Uh, it's been publicly broadcasted in the local papers, the, the national papers on the national news. It's, it's been part of um, federal um, talks uh, for quite literally a year and a half to two years now. Even prior to COVID, they were already concerned about the industry. Um, they were already talking about the number of staff that we weren't going to have as of 2030. And then obviously COVID greatly exacerbated that. Um, what has occurred, however, is we have always been able to make it above the bare minimums that are required for those, for those ratios of care. And something has always put us in a position where we've been just bumped up a little bit above it. So we've, sure. always, been, we've always been okay. Um, and we've been able to, to, to survive on that, which quite literally every facility is at this point. Um, you know, Maybe not every facility, I guess I can't include all, but many yeah. of the facilities that I'm aware of, um, I know of a facility the other day that actually had to buy Dunkin' Donuts for all of their residents because they didn't have anybody to cook. You know, oh, wow. so yeah, so it's, it's very much, you know, it's a very much an industry issue. Um, so we've always had something that could save us, if you will, uh, for right. lack of better terms. Um, when, so the timeline, that this decision actually had to come to fruition was we started looking four to almost five months before this situation had occurred to try to find staff. You know, we've been very transparent that we've been working with 42 staffing agencies and they've been only able to provide one to two individuals. Right. Um, you know, we've, we've made it public even since COVID uh, that, you know, in the newspapers and our podcast that you and I had that we were struggling for, for staff even before um, our COVID outbreak. You know, this wasn't a new case to the building. It's been a challenge. Um, as we progressed into August, um, we started to become quite concerned about the end of September deadline. Um, again, that's 60 days out. A lot can still fairly happen in 60 days, especially where we've made it the last two years, something has always come through. We've always been right. able to acquire staff. We've always been able to get assistance or magically we had two or three people that came in that wanted to get hired at one time. So we, there's always been something. 
when the vaccine mandate hit on August 12th, we were already a couple couple days, I'm not talking months or weeks, a couple days before that, I had already started running numbers of, with my director of nursing, as well as with our staffing coordinator, to try to figure out how we're going to make this work as of the end of September. We had, um, you know, draft schedules drawn out with in Excel with, you know, and in pencils and crossing names out and yep. trying to move people around. When August 12th hit, that was the, okay, we really need to take a look at what's going on here. So I had a meeting with licensing um, right before this vaccine mandate, actually. Um, and because we were concerned, we were losing a couple staff members on residential care um, because of uh, uh, unrelated um, reasons. And so I had immediately called a, a meeting with licensing. Mind you, again, this is only a couple days before the vaccine mandate. Yeah. Um, and I spoke with state licensing leaders. Um, so the head of long-term care, the head of licensing himself, the, the head of uh, our residential PNMI level four assisted living um, uh, licensing line, as well as the ombudsman. Um, and we had a conversation about our staffing and what can we do about our staffing year. And I brought up all of the examples that we've been trying, working with other facilities, working with local hospitals, working with the colleges. Um, and it was provided to me at that time um, that, and I was told by licensing that I needed to take an honest look about if we were able to continue our program here. Because mm -hmm. as they had noted, this has been a, um, a challenge for us during COVID. And here we are a year later, um, still having these, conversations where it's not day to day that we're trying to figure out if we have enough staff, it's shift to shift. Right. Um, and so having that in my mind and then having the vaccine uh, mandate hit, we really did have to take an honest look at our program. Um, so I reached out to the board. We had an emergency board meeting on August 18th. So just six days later, the decision was made that we will not have the staff. We, we just cannot find the staff. Again, it's not a financial issue that we're having. It's, it's we cannot physically have the bodies necessary to care for the residents. And if we drop our census so low that we now have enough people to keep the ratios correct, we will run out of money very quickly because right. there's a lot of fixed costs in this environment. Very few are variable. Those are the ones that are related to the number of residents that you have, but there are a lot of fixed costs which just don't balance out. Um, and so we sent in our closure plan on August 23rd. It was approved on August 27th and we notified less than 48 hours later on August 29th. So this was a very quick process for all of us. This wasn't something that was pre-planned. It wasn't something that we've known about for months or years, um, quite literally from the day of the vaccine mandate to the board meeting was six days. And that was just because we have, we have to give notice to be able to get people from all over on, onto a board meeting, as I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. On right. Yes. Um, and then, so from that board meeting to when we notified the, the community, the public was only 11 days. It wasn't even two weeks. And during that, that period of time, when we submitted our closure plan to the state, that, we have to follow what our legal counsel is recommending. And we can't notify individuals until we have an approved plan by the federal government under CMS. So it has to be approved through CMS. It has to be approved through state licensing. And then it gets back to us as your, your closure plan has been approved. We can't talk about it until it's been approved because we have to go through a formal process that's regulated by law on how we have to notify people, when we have to notify people. And we can't, we can't spread that information without having that approval. And so I, I know that that's been very much a, a frustrating point for the community. And I really just wanted to address that, that we weren't holding this information in, uh, you know, secretly, you know, um, that was not the perception that we wanted to build. Um, this just happened so fast for even us that we realized, okay, we had a meeting with the state. They said that they can't help us. We now have this vaccine mandate, which again, wasn't the reason, but it was yet another barrier to our situation. And then we had to say, okay, we've not been able to acquire anybody in the four to five months. We're not going to have anybody in six weeks. We really got to do something. So I just really wanted to make sure that that was out there that, you know, it's not that we didn't communicate, it's we communicated as very quickly as, as we possibly could. Um, but I don't want people to, to think that we've been sitting on this information because that's certainly not um, 
what's actually occurred. And, and we want to be transparent with that. We've, we weren't holding this information from anybody. Sure. And I, I so appreciate that explanation and the timeline that you provided. Um, and it kind of, it goes into my next question, which was, I, I keep hearing from the community that they wish they had known about the staffing problem um, and how dire it was earlier. Um, do you feel like the nursing home tried to communicate this before the closure? Um, just, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And it may be just in parallel with what you already said. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've had that question or, or that comment come up a couple times. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly will, will say that, no, we, we didn't put on our Facebook or have a public release that says, hey, we are, we are in a dire staffing situation because we recognized quite literally the week of August 12th. You know, before that, I think it, it, it should, it, it was, maybe it wasn't, but I, I would think that it was apparent to everybody because it's, it's on the news um, quite weekly. It's in the papers, it's on Facebook, it's, it's on Instagram, it's on TikTok. It's, we, we as a nation have known that there's a healthcare worker shortage for decades. I remember, you know, being back in high school and they were pushing nursing and pharmacy because there just wasn't enough, you know, so, and it's, and it's only become that much more of an issue as we progressed. Um, and we were obviously very public during our COVID outbreak um, that we had made mention that our staffing was dire even before COVID. And this really pushed us over the limit. This is why we had to get main response. This is why we had to work with the local colleges. And um, we had EMTs and doctors working as CNAs during that time. Um, and that was made possible because we were under an emergency waiver from the federal government, um, which doesn't exist anymore. You know, they've, they've, they've removed that allowance for us to be able to do that. So that's not something that we can apply to this situation. Um, and so, you know, with our situation being dire for staffing prior to COVID, being so public about how dire our staffing was during COVID and being transparent as well as not only ourselves, but also the nation being transparent that medical staffing has only gotten worse since COVID. So, I, and I, I do apologize that no, we, we, we did not publicly come out and say, hey, we're still really in a bad spot for staffing, um, but I, I guess we had assumed, and I guess assuming is dangerous, but I, I guess we had assumed that with all of the national and local um, media coverage and the conversations in DC, as well as on our own, um, our own state government, um, that it would have been relatively apparent that with our geo geographic location um, and other businesses here on the area struggling with staff, um, the school, the, the grocery store, quite literally every business is struggling, um, that we wouldn't be an anomaly to that. We wouldn't be the only one that actually has staffing compared to everybody else. Absolutely. And I, I think that point of everybody struggling with staffing is brought out by the fact that there is going to be a meeting on Zoom tonight um, about workforce um, staffing. And it involves all the employers on the island, certainly not just Island Nursing Home. Um, from a personal and completely selfish place, um, I have been trying for six months to find someone to shovel the walkways at the medical center. Um, and I have had zero response, zero positive response. Um, and so that that's one position of many, many positions. Um, and it's, and so I feel your pain because your, your times a hundred, um, that one, one part-time position, you're probably even more, probably times 200, trying to figure out and, and get all those ducks in the row. So um, it's definitely something that we need to, to be aware of on the island. Um, and it's, it's something that hopefully we can address going forward. Now, do you, what was your experience with the workforce housing group on the island? Did you find that that could have provided you with, with some housing, which I understand was something that drove um, the staffing being critical. And, and you had commented somebody was driving from Millinocket. Do you think that the workforce housing can work or can get to a point where, where that could help in situations like that? What, what was your experience? Yeah, so, you know, and, and as I had noted um, to the group, uh, 
because we, we worked quite closely with them. Um, in fact, we even tried, uh, they actually surveyed um, what we had here for property to see if there was something that we could even use some of our property to help with what they were doing. Um, we worked with their committees. Um, you know, we worked quite closely with them. Um, and they did have the opportunity for us to partake in one to two apartments at a, a $150,000 apartment, um, which, I think that the workforce housing, I think that it's it's great. And I think it's going to be able to provide um, some really good opportunity to the local community. Um, and exactly as I had shared with them is we just don't have the the three to 10 years to be able to, to need, we have a need, we have a current need now. Um, and, you know, and so what we ended up having to do was pivot and we, we started looking at properties around the area you know, because we could buy a four-bedroom home for one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand, um, as opposed to a, a two-bedroom apartment, um, and you know, so it's. I think it's a great program. I think it will will provide benefit to the island. I think you know, uh, whatever um, program exists here in the future, because I think that you know, certainly there's going to be a, a benefit to the community that's going to be coming from um, the heart of island nursing, if you will. Um, I think that that will certainly provide resources for for that. Um, unfortunately, our need was very much in the present um, and very much, very much a, a yesterday uh, situation as opposed to uh, in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for that really eloquent answer to a very badly asked question. I feel like I stumbled over my words, but you did a great job of answering. Um, can you comment on the recent Bangor Daily News article about nursing home staff being required to sign an agreement not to disparage the nursing home if they wanted to get a retention bonus? Is that true? And if it is true, why was this done? Yeah, so um, I have to say, you know, uh, that article um, has caused so much harm to our staff um, because it has painted them in such a picture that they are in turn accepting money over the care and the love of the residents. Um, and it's, it's really sad. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's taken quite a hit to a lot of the staff here um, that the paper would paint that picture. Um, so the, the agreement that you're, you're noting, so when, we, when this all started to occur, we wanted to recognize those individuals that were going to take the time and make the sacrifice, even knowing that the facility is on path to closure, that they were going to stick it out for the residents. They were going to stick it out for the loved ones here and make sure that they still had care all the way through to the end. And to me, that is highly honorable and commendable. Um, we, and I say we, I mean me, the board, the directors, we wanted to have something in place to thank them for their efforts in assisting us with this. This is generally done when a building closes. You know, in fact, um, we actually got our draft from another organization that had a facility close. You know, this isn't something that we created on our own. It's, it's, hey, we've never gone through this. What do you, what have you guys done? And, and quite honestly, all the individuals that worked through the very end were supposed to get a lump sum of money at the end. And that was yep. going to be the retention bonus, if you will. But we said, you know what? No, we want to be able to thank and recognize anybody that can even give us a week, three weeks, seven weeks. And so we created a plan where people receive additional pay based off of the number of hours they can provide each and every week, because we want to thank them. If they can only give us a week, we wanted to make sure that we really appreciate them sticking on for that extra week to help us. Or if they can give us a week now and come back in three weeks and still give us another week, we want to be able to thank you for being able to come back and give us a hand right now. Um, the, the, the gag order, as it's been called, um, it, it as I'm sure you're familiar with, as, as I'm sure most individuals are familiar with, it, it's just common language. And in fact, when we sent it out to our legal counsel and they, they kicked back that document, they said, okay, well, yeah, we, we think that your, your pay uh, bonus um, structure plan is, is great. Um, here's what we recommend putting in place. This is something that we do with all of our clients. It's just general legal jargon. And um, it, it doesn't stop people from talking about 
their situation. It doesn't stop them from talking about how they're affected by the facility closing or how it makes them feel or how, me included, how we don't know what we're going to do for our job after this. You right. know, it doesn't stop us from that. It's, it is put there because again, we, we, people pay lawyers to think of the worst case scenario. Absolutely. Right? 100%. So that's exactly all this is, is it protecting an avenue so that it doesn't give somebody the opportunity to go out to the community and share information that's not accurate or not true or just downright slanderous um, and, and put us in a position that it makes it harder for us to one, care for the residents here, but two, make sure that the staff are staying comfortable while they're continuing to help us through this closure process. And three, not putting any hindrance or barriers in place so that we can help get these residents transferred to a facility that's close so that their loved ones can still visit them in a reasonable distance. That's all that was there. Again, it's just a, it's a legal protection. It's not something that we were like, okay, we got to shut people down here. No, it's just, it was recommended that we put it out there because it's, it's common language that's used in, in many of these situations. And we said, okay, well, if that's the recommendation, then that's, you know, um, that's a good way to protect that avenue. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it should, uh, uh, it's really unfortunate and sad how it was painted uh, in, in the newspaper. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, Anne, uh, we've actually had a number of staff since then, um, as well as, you know, some of the, we'll call it responses and or outrage from some of the community um, has actually cr created um, conversations and environments here with the staff that are local to the area um, where they don't want to continue working, even if there's a facility that or a program that that remains after this. They don't want to be part of that if that's how the community is going to respond to them. And those aren't my words. These I've actually had people come to my office and and share how upset they are um, that that's how they were painted in the paper and and the things that are being said on Facebook. Um, and so we we really are just trying to protect our staff as best as we can, protect our residents and provide them the best care that we can. And we just wanted to thank our staff for even if they could give us an, a day. We wanted to give them a thank you for that each and every week that they can do it. So that's all that that agreement was for. And I, I really appreciate that explanation. Um, I just want to highlight something and, and get your agreement on it because it was brought out in reference to that article and, and the so-called gag order. In no way did that gag order ever say that if, if an employee observes substandard care or wrongdoing or something like that within the nursing home that that could, would not be able to be reported. It was not to silence whistleblowers, so to speak. And that was never the intention. Absolutely not, no. Uh, in fact, on all of our name badges, we have the abuse prevention hotline yes. phone number on all of our badges. Um, that is not an expectation that has uh, hindered at all. If there is any substandard care or any questions of abuse, neglect, misappropriation, or mistreatment, um, that needs to be reported to me immediately, and it gets reported to the state immediately. Um, that's not anything that would be um, subjected to or covered underneath that quote-unquote gag order, um, right. as, as it's being called. Um, no, this was that that order, if you will, was just for, obviously, everybody's going to be going through the stages of grief. And one of those is anger. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we, we say things in anger that we don't necessarily mean. I think that we all have things that we can look back upon and wish that we hadn't said. Oh, yeah. Well, in, in this type of situation, it can be damaging to the health and safety of, of placing somebody or having enough staff to continue to provide care if the wrong thing is said. Um, that was out of anger, out of spite, that had no truth or validity to it. And so that's, that's all that was geared towards. Absolutely not. Does this not apply to any type of resident care, um, employee health or safety? Um, it does not override any of those laws, rules, or regulations. Absolutely not. Perfect. I knew the answer to it, but I just wanted to say it again, because I, I think it's really important. And it's been something that was called into question, uh, which is is really sad because we know that our residents at the Island Nursing Home are getting top-notch care and we really appreciate the people that are providing that care. Um, 
I want to get to some community questions that were forwarded to me to ask you. Um, Some of them you've touched on. And if that's the case, if you could just re-answer it um, so we're sure we get them, that would be great. So how many residents at this point have found placements, even if they haven't been transferred? So even if they haven't been transferred, we have... I've got 13 that are active right now that are looking for placement, and we have had five that have already found placement and have have, uh, since been moved from the facility. Okay, that was my next question. How many residents have been transferred? So we're at the five right now. Um, How many residents must be transferred before September 22nd, Um, which is kind of the date that we were told that um, INH will be short the 20 staff members or full-time equivalents? Sure. So thankfully, um, there has been a slight change to that, which I have notified licensing, um, which they were very uh, happy to hear as well, um, is uh, with the governor uh, moving the vaccination date from October 1st to November 1st, um, we have had a, a couple of, uh, of our contract staff members um, that were willing to extend for a month. Um, because they're already here uh, and they were going, I mean, they were going to terminate their contracts to go home. They don't want to stick on for another three months, but um, to stick on for another three or four weeks, they certainly said that they can help us with that. So the September 22nd um, barrier, we are going to potentially still be losing a couple people. Um, But since we've had discharges from the facility, we're still going to be maintained um, okay for staffing levels and ratios. Um, So the the 22nd isn't so much our our area of concern now. Um, It's uh, our next barrier has actually moved to October 15th, um, which is the president's order, which is being um, conducted and managed by CMS. They have not released the final ruling yet um, to require vaccinations of all long-term care staff in the United States. Um, But they have made note that if and when that rule does go into effect, October 15th is the date that they're expecting. Um, and so with those, we do have those contract staff that would cut their contracts a couple of weeks short. Um, however, if that ruling does not go into effect or it goes into effect at a later date and time, we do have now uh, okay staffing until the 26th. On the 26th though, um, that's when we have a, nearly all of our contract staff, um, their contracts are, are running out. Um, And so they won't be renewing from there. Um, And I know that one of the questions was um, how many staff will we have remaining at that time? Um, The last calculation was on the nursing side, including nurses, um, med techs, and CNAs will have seven people. Okay. To cover three shifts, seven days a week. So that's that's why that decision was made that we have to do something now um, to make sure that we can get our residents to a safe place with closure. Absolutely. Now, going back to that Bangor Daily News article, um, there was in it, it it kind of alludes to the fact that the state suggested some alternatives to closing. Can you describe what those were um, and whether there was any viability in any of them? Sure. You know, there was no formal um, suggestion, uh, to be honest with you, because I actually had to think back um, when they said that they had recommended, um, I actually had to think back as to what, if any, reference that was to. Um, the only conversations that uh, provided any other alternatives um, was the conversation that I had prior to the vaccine mandate. Um, and we did have a couple conversations after the 18th as we were building up to the closure plan on the 23rd. And those conversations primarily revolved around the idea of keeping the res care side open. Um, and when we ran the numbers, uh, we're, we're falling short about $640,000, um, per year if we try to keep the res care side open. Um, and that is still, uh, my notes here, we would still need to accrue, uh, roughly 18 and a half, uh, more full-time equivalents to make that plan a reality. And that's still with the $640,000 deficit. Um, and so uh, I know that it had been noted in the paper um, that we, we declined those alternatives and, it, and the, the paper kind of 
uh, pointed the idea that we just brushed them aside as, nope, that's it, we're closing. Um, when in fact, we actually ran the numbers. Um, we've had Barry Dunn, which is our accounting firm. Um, they've run a number of different um, financial options for us. We've tried working with um, some local larger organizations to see if there were any opportunities there. Um, unfortunately, everybody is still in the same staffing situation that we are. Um, and as we all know, uh, a couple of the facilities that were uh, mentioned the same week that we were closing are part of large organizations in the state of Maine. Um, and, you know, not to draw any light to them, but if they don't have enough staff where they have more resources, they can kind of shift around. Um, we're certainly very much in the same position that we, we don't have the staff. So we have looked at, you know, various options of, you know, what if we did uh, some type of hospice here, or what if we did um, some kind of temporary hold on the nursing side and just kept res care, or what if we did the whole building as res care? Um, unfortunately, either the staff doesn't line up, or if the staff lines up, the finances don't line up. And again, we wouldn't be able to survive very long. The contracts uh, staff are very much band-aids as well. Um, you know, for yep. full, full disclosure, for this fiscal year, we were budgeted to lose $860,000 with, with over $1.2 million in contract staff. Since 2019, we have spent $2.3 million on contract staff. And I know that people keep saying, well, how come you don't just pay your staff $35 an hour, $50 an hour? For, for CNAs or for, for frontline staff. And the challenge being is that contracts are supposed to be very much temporary. Yep. It's a contract, right? They're only here for, for sometimes four weeks, sometimes six, eight or 12. Some people do extend, um, you know, but nobody will extend beyond the one year mark. I shouldn't say nobody, but they're, they're reluctant to go past the one year because if you've contracted in the state for more than a year, you have to start paying taxes on your, your housing funds. Um, which is a huge benefit to being a contract staff. Um, in fact, in many cases, it's a third, if not half of what they make in, an, in a year is untaxed. Um, and that's just my experience. That's not formal data. That's just from sure. what I've heard from, from our contract staff. Um, the issue is, is if I had put, if I put our own staff up to 35, I certainly can do that, but we would need millions of dollars of donations every single year from the community to, to sustain. Um, right. it, we, we could not sustain financially because again, that is that is a permanent increase or a permanent fixture as opposed to a contract staff being a temporary, it's supposed to be just a bandaid. It's supposed to be for a short time till we can get our own staff in. Unfortunately, our own staff haven't been able, we have not been able to acquire our own staff in, you know, since even before COVID. Exactly. No, and I appreciate that uh, explanation because it's, it is something that keeps coming up is why don't we just pay local people more? Um, but if it, it, it's a Band-Aid solution. And, and if I can add to that, um, you know, we, we had the Department of Health and Human Services workforce to, uh, director did, did an analysis with her team um, and she kicked back what we should be paying um, for every single position in this building. We are paying three to eight dollars more per hour for every position based off of the entire state survey. Wow. Um, and they do um, national surveys through American Healthcare Association as well as through Maine Healthcare. Um, and we are paying, uh, we are one of the highest paying facilities up to and including the entire Boston area. Um, so certainly, you know, we have tried financially to attract people. Um, obviously we've talked a number of times about how housing has been a challenge, not only for us to get our own in-house staff, um, which we've lost to other buildings in Bangor because they could find housing in the Bangor area, but not here, um, sure. but also, also contract staff. Um, and I know that there's been um, some question about, well, what if, what if we get international staff from the Philippines? Yes. That was another you know, question. Exactly. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard about that and that's, 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 Great. Um, unfortunately, that program takes anywhere between one to four years um, because you have to identify the staff member. That's a, quite a credentialing process to go through. Um, once that is approved, you have to be able to get the individual here, get them their visa. You have to support them for usually up to two months. We have to basically just give them income so that they can survive um, until their visas get approved and they're able to work. And then they also have to pay it past the local boards to be even be considered as a nurse here in the state. Um, there are individuals right now working for local organizations that 
are from other countries. They couldn't pass our board. So even though they're a nurse in their country, they're a CNA here. Um, And so, you know, that's one of the challenges. Um, And then they still have to find housing, you know, and that we we circle right back to that same problem of housing. So maybe, you know, the workforce um, housing solution might be able to line up with us getting some foreign staff here. But just to go through the visa process to get them here, it can take anywhere between one and four years. And we've been working with a couple organizations, a couple different agencies um, to see what that process might look like. And that's what we've been informed of. Wow. Yeah, this was not a let's wait for a year, uh, four years type solution that you were looking for. Um, If you don't mind sharing, another question that's come from the community is what's going to happen to your position in all of this? Um, If INH has no residents there as of October 26, are you going to continue as executive director? Um, what, What does your future look like to the extent that you're comfortable sharing that? Sure. You know, I know, I know that, um, you know, there's been a lot of frustration um, and certainly it has to go somewhere. And I can appreciate, you know, being in the role that I am um, to, to take some of that frustration. Uh, and certainly, you know, there's always things that we could have done better or different. Hindsight is always 2020. Um, you know, even with COVID, we know now if we get hit with COVID, we, even though we were nationally recognized, um, even by our own federal government, by FEMA, about how amazing we handled COVID here, we still see things that we could do better differently. Sure. 100%. So, you know, in this same scenario, you know, I, I think that there are certainly things that um, has caused frustration that we could have done a little bit differently. Um, but I think that following the process as best as we possibly could have, or as legally as we had to, um, you know, I think that the team as well as the board uh, has done a great job getting us to here. Um as I had shared with the board, uh, I, I don't intend to just bail ship, um, you know, so even though that there's no residents here, um, I still know the business, I still know the licensing, I still know the, the, the key players to communicate with at the state levels. Um, and so I will be staying on even after the October 26th uh, deadline, even if there are no residents here to help, um, for lack of better terms, close up shop. Um, yep. making sure that the right documents, again, we have medical records that we have to maintain for 10 years, you know, so we need to have a plan for that. We need to have a custodial plan. We have audits that are going to occur for the next 18 months to two years even, um, and we have to have a plan for that. And so those are not focuses right now. Right now, our focus is getting the residents placed. And so after that October 26 deadline, that's where I will be pivoting my focus to um, to help uh with those business matters of, of what do we need to do next um, to make sure that, you know, whatever the future is for INH, um, it's, it's, again, lack of better terms, bundled properly, and it's, and it's ready to go when the community is ready. Absolutely. Thank you for that update. Um, I did this to Rhonda last week, so I'm doing it to you this week. Um, sometimes in situations like this, it might be easy to blame the leaders of Island Nursing Home. Can you tell me as an administrator what you have seen from your board of directors during this challenging time? You know, I think that's what's really unique about our our community and our board is that they everybody cares so much. Yeah. You know, um, I think that this was hard, you know, not only for me, but very much for the board uh, as well as the staff here is coming to a realization that this really is out of our control. You know, we, we, our hands are really tied. You know, it's, it's, it's not something that we can ask the community for more money. It's not, we can't just shut off a piece of our business to keep the rest going. You know, there's no magical solution other than we need people, we need physical bodies, you know? And so I think, you know, um, it was hard to accept that process at first or accept that situation. Um, and so, you know, as, as a, a board um, and as, as working together with me and them as a team, you know, we, we went over countless different options. We went over, you know, different finances. We went over different programs. We did, we did a lot of what ifs. Um, we did a lot of, can we make it, you know, um, you know, what if that happened? Um, you know, and then we always had to play devil's advocate for each other. You know, um, what if we got COVID in the building? Right. You know, are, are we, you know, we might, let, let's say, let's say what if we can get enough staff so we can keep ResCare going and, you know, we can get enough donors to keep it afloat. What if, what's our emergency plan if we get COVID and we lose 
40 to 60% of those staff members again. Um, and I say that because there's actually a local facility. Um, I'll just say in the, we'll call it the, the here to Bangor area that yep. they have extremely high vaccination rates. Um, and they are asking for main responders assistance right now, as well as national guard, because even though they're vaccinated, um, they had breakthrough cases because, right. you know, as we all know, they're talking about getting the booster shot in many long-term care facilities got vaccinated in December and January. So many of us are due for those booster shots. Um, and so, you know, we certainly have seen that the vaccine um, makes it so people, the mortality rate is, is, very much drastically less. Um, right. People are, are much less sick, but if an employee gets sick, even if, even if they're asymptomatic, if they get swabbed, if they're positive, they're out for 14 days, you know? And so that vaccine could protect them, but it doesn't protect the, the organization for, for losing somebody for 14 days. And if we lose 40 to 60% of our staff, what are we going to do? You know? Um, and so we certainly played a lot of those situations back and forth. Um, you know, I do appreciate that the board has, has very much, um, you know, the support of the work that the team has done here. Um, you know, uh, we have done some amazing things over the last few years. Um, INH is recognized uh, all across New England. Uh, we get calls from facilities all across the state, all the way down to um, New York, even reaching out to us about are the systems and the programs that we're doing. We've helped out a number of facilities with our emergency preparedness programs, acquiring PPE trainings. You know, so we really have become quite a, uh, a leader um, you know, during this time. Um, and so, you know, the board is cer certainly has been uh, very much a, um, an advocate in defending that amongst, um, again, some of that frustration, uh, you know, that might be out there. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, and I think Rhonda has noted this as well, you know, we didn't really get to make the decision. You know, the, the decision really was made for us. Uh, you know, the, the industry just doesn't have the resources available. Um, and so, you know, it, it really has led us to a, a situation where we, yes, we had to make the, the formal announcement and we had to go through the formal process, but it wasn't so much, yes, the board had to vote on, I don't legally have the ability to, to decide if we close the building or not. That actually, right. I, I can't even be part of that vote. I, I'm merely an employee at that point. Um, you know, so the board did have to vote yes, that we needed to proceed with closure. Um, but again, it wasn't so much myself or the board, it's we have exhausted every single option possible to get staff um, and the resources just aren't there. And I, I really appreciate you explaining all of this. I know I've said it before in the podcast, but I think it's so important um, because there are human beings behind all of these um, decisions that had to be made. And certainly we as a community need to remember that your board of directors are working as volunteers um, on behalf of all of us. They are not getting paid for this. Um, this in some ways is just tearing them apart emotionally. Um, and it wasn't a decision that they made offhand or at the last minute or anything like that. This was an educated decision um, that, that needed to be made. Um, and yes, it, it probably did get made kind of at the last minute because of the timing of it. Um, but we just really, I just, I want to let the board know how much the community appreciates them because I don't know that they're always feeling that right now. Absolutely. You know, and I, and I did want to share, you know, the, the, the meeting uh, meetings that we've had, you know, they've, they've been late nights, <laughs> you know, they've been, yes. some late, been yes. a lot of conversation. There's been tears. There's been anger, frustration. There's been devil's advocate. There's been, you know, again, you know, this, this wasn't just a, nope, nope, that's it. You know, let's close up shop. We ain't, we don't have anything else, you know, um, there, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of emotion, you know, that has played into this. And, um, you know, this certainly wasn't taken or chosen lightly by anybody, including myself. Um, you know, uh, it's not something that any administrator ever wants to say is, you know, we, we have to move forward with a closure plan. But at the end of the day, my role, as well as the board's role, as well as everybody in this building, is to ensure that the residents are safe. And if we identify a scenario where they're not going to be safe, we have to do something about it. Absolutely. Um, that seems like a perfect place as we're talking about roles. 
um, to kind of wrap up the podcast, I like to ask this at the end of each episode that we do. What can the community do right now this week to be the most assistance to you, your staff, and your board? You know, um, honestly, what I what I could put out there is I, I certainly can appreciate, especially with, with how many miracles this community worked during COVID and how amazing this community can be and how frustrating and angry people must feel to, to have to accept the same situation that we had to accept. Um, and, and I can appreciate the, the frustration and anger. I can. Um, trust me, uh, I, I was just as frustrated and angry. Um, in fact, I had said things to the board president that I've never said before and caught her <laughs> off guard because I was just like, Rhonda, I, I don't know what to do. Like, my hands are tied here, you know, and I, I hate feeling kind of like backed into a corner or hopeless. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that's what we're all feeling is that hopelessness. And it's a terrible feeling. Um, but what I can ask is if, if not for the residents, if not for the staff, you know, certainly not for me, but for the community, um, for, for everybody's own personal closure, uh, if that's the, you know, if that's the proper term is if we can channel that frustration and that anger to what can we do positively? What, what can we do to assist? Because, you know, a lot of these, um, messages that are being shared, whether it's in the paper or on Facebook, it's really being damaging to the residents see it. I mean, we have our residents crying because of what the public is putting on Facebook. We have staff that don't want to be island nursing anymore, even if it exists after this. They don't want it because they don't, if that's how, again, and I understand that we all say things out of anger and frustration, and that's why I'm asking you know, I know that this community is amazing. I know that they've pulled off miracles. The, the work that they did and helped us with COVID was, was truly nothing short of, of a, a miracle, magical. Um, so I know that this community can do amazing things. And I'm just asking that we use that energy to put towards how can we solve for as an island, how can we solve the housing issue? How can we solve the employment issue? How, if we wanna have a program here, how can we create sustainable educational programs in our community? Not a Band-Aid, but sustainable programs, not only for us, but for all of the local employers, for sustainability, to attract people to the island, to, to get people here, have housing available, reasonable cost-effective housing um, yes. and have jobs available for them that are going to be sustainable and, and, and present for them. Um, you know, and I think that's the only thing I can ask. And I ask that be, because of the residents and because of the staff, because they're the ones that are feeling the comments, you know, they're the ones that are feeling the anger and the frustration and, you know, um, many people have worked here for, for years and many, some of them decades. And so to have all of that hard work, um, just to have a shadow cast upon it. Yeah. And, and one of the times that we really need as much support as possible from the community, um, it's, it's weighing heavy on their hearts. I appreciate, I do. I very much appreciate you being that frank about it. Um, during COVID, I, I started signing my emails, stay healthy, positive, and kind. Um, and so I will challenge the entire community as we're communicating about this, as we're talking with each other, um, to remember positivity and remember kindness and remember that people are reading our comments, people are hearing what we say, and it's people whose whose actual lives are being affected. So Matthew, I've taken way more of your time than I intended to today, but I really appreciate your answers. Um, and I look forward to talking to you in another week or so. Absolutely. As always, thank you very much. Thanks.